Welcome to the Petro Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Trisha Curtis, CEO of Petro Nerds. This show combines upstream and midstream expertise in a Rocky Mountain showdown. Hello, and welcome to the Petro Nerds Podcast. I feel like I just did this yesterday because I just did this yesterday with Justin Kringstad. Uh, but today is uh, Tuesday, March 1st, and I have a very special guest for you. Um, this is episode 42 of the Petronas podcast, and my guest today, um, this has been long awaited. We've been trying to get this on the books for a while, but my guest is Matt Gallagher, who is the former uh, CEO and executive of Parsley and, a, a, as you know, a very formidable local producer in the Permian Basin that was purchased by Pioneer Natural Resources and um, Matt has a lot of ventures and things he's been doing since then, which we will certainly talk about. Um, and, you know, a lot is going on in the market, and I'm going to timestamp this in just a second with prices. Uh, but without further ado, uh, Matt, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I'm glad we, you know, we found a time, and I really appreciate you carving out some time for this. Yeah, Tricia, thanks for having me and uh, followed your work. And uh, you had me at Petro Nerd, so uh, Nerd kind of got me pulled in and I figured what better space to uh, to talk about oil and gas than, than with a fellow nerd. So I'm looking forward to this. Thanks for finally uh, setting it up. It's been a scheduling challenge and uh, we finally did it. So here we are. Absolutely. Well, no, thank you. That's awesome. And that's a very endearing entry, entry point. So with that, um, so W2, it is Tuesday, March 1st, 2022. Um, you know, I, I, was up till two in the morning watching everything going on in Ukraine. Um, and it was quite bananaville and, uh, Kiev has not been taken over yet, but a lot of bombings were taking place. So there, there's sort of that backdrop, but WTI did spike. And I think this was the, obviously the contracts rolling over cause it's March 1st. Um, so we weren't, we weren't even close to, well, we were like 97 or, or lo, well below a hundred bucks last night when I went to bed. And then it was, it spiked to 105 WTI did. And now we're at 104, 28, Brent is 105.72 and Nat Gas is 4.57. And tonight we have the State of the Union from uh, Joe Biden, the President of the United States. So I think that will be very interesting because the market is tanking. Um, it's Dow as well over down 600 points. The only thing up is energy and um, things aren't looking good. And I've been telling folks uh, we're sort of headlong into recession. This is before the war in Ukraine that sort of added to it, um, which is not something I want to make light of. It's extremely serious and um, and quite sad. But uh, outside of that, we were sort of headlong into a recession anyway. Um, but oil prices being up, I'd love to tell producers to just drill baby drill. And I am wearing a, a drill bit necklace. However, um, I don't know how long they're going to stay up. So with that, um, we're going to, we have a lot of ground to cover. We do. We do. No, it's, uh, this is unfortunately the geopolitical situation. The war on Ukraine is pulling forward a lot of realities i think that we haven't wanted to face for a long time so it'll be it'll be interesting to hear what the president has to say tonight but but really we've got to do as many things we've got to reassess uh, as western powers as western governments and and how can we how can we come to a short-term uh salvo to counterpunch uh his his energy weapon that he's using on Ukraine and, and really on Germany and, and Europe and as a whole. Um, so, you know, the people on this podcast that like to listen to this and the people in this industry have a unique probably obligation at this point to to do what we can um, to to message this properly for our nation and, and for 
the other nations to come to grips with a, a framework, a plan to um, counterpunch this through through reliable um, energy production. So, and I think it can work uh, in conjunction with some of the stated goals that that this administration has had going into the energy transformation, energy um, renaissance that that they're proposing. I think they can work together. I don't think it has to be, you know, and I told you so or a, a look back on on anything. It's, it's these are the facts on the ground now. And let's uh, let's march forward as quickly as possible. Yeah, I, I disagree with that a little, the last part a bit because I don't I don't believe uh, I don't have any faith in this administration in terms of energy policy. Um, so when they have a, a an aide today saying, "Hey, producers, you can produce more," it's 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 a little late. And I, I you know it's interesting because we we actually you reached out to me on Twitter. I think that's how we actually connected. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we were we were Twitter buddies a long time ago. And I, I don't use Twitter, I think, the way a lot of folks do. Of, uh, it's, I like lots of information as opposed to snippets of information. Um, however, this, you know, on Twitter, you get these conversations with people. And this was several months ago, folks saying, you know, there was people getting arguments really easily. LinkedIn, there's less sort of arguments that sort of, here's information and people like it or dislike it. And on Twitter, it's like argument world. But there were sort of arguments, I think it was uh, Energy Credit One was, there was a pushback several months ago when I said that, you know, the, the U.S. could do more to, you know, to actually produce more oil to signal that we could do more. And, you know, he basically said, no, the market, the policymakers and, and Biden couldn't do anything. And I, I really struggle with that because, you know, from the beginning of this administration, from day one, and I, I do think it's really important to put it in context. No, they didn't do this, right? The administration didn't do what's going on. And you, every president gets blamed for if gas prices are high, if the economy is not doing well, they get blamed for that. Right. However, you get more blamed for it when you sort of uh, put the nail in the coffin, when you cancel Keystone Excel, when you when you sign right. up for the Paris Climate Accords, um, and when you 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 enact on day one a in a climate change executive order. You do he did cancel you know for two months permits on federal land, so it wasn't as yep. though and and at least you know you can actually if you stay up late at night and you listen to market analysts on CNBC World, you'll get folks that come out and say you know this administration has had a war on on fossil fuels. Um, which I know we we'll call that it's it's crude oil, natural gas, and coal. But it, it's true that there there is very anti-energy policy. And if you go to D.C. and you spend time with folks, there isn't anyone in the White House that actually truly understands hydrocarbons. So you know, it, when it comes to LNG, when it comes to permitting LNG infrastructure, um, at the beginning, I think there was a sense that this administration maybe was open to natural gas, um, as, as most entities were, or Europe and a lot of folks were sort of on the fence of natural gas, um, knowing that they need it, but they don't really know what to do with it. And that kind of got that got squashed sort of middle of the road. We had a lease sale. You know, we had a Gulf of Mexico lease sale only because it was legally obligated to by by the courts. And then when that lease sale happened, it was a record lease sale because everyone knew they weren't going to be able to buy another Gulf of Mexico lease um, under this administration. And since then, that has been wholeheartedly squashed. There, there will be no more lease sales. So when, uh, yes, have oil and gas producers been able to drill, you know, holes on on everything in the ground? Absolutely. Um, has there been any like, hey, let's let's uh, permit more LNG infrastructure. Let's maybe build out a pipeline out of the Marcellus. Let's you know prevent that that capacity. Absolutely not. And there's not a prayer's chance in hell it's going to happen under this administration because that would that would signal a leaning into to oil and gas. However, we have had 
you know, the wobbling on Nord Stream 2, which is obviously done now, um, canceling of Keystone XL. And, and uh, there's hope, I think, and I don't know if it's going to happen, of lifting Iran sanctions. And that hope has been, you know, in play th- from last summer. And it keeps getting smashed down. Um, and it's also a real problem. I mean, people may want to lift Iran sanctions now to add over a million barrels a day to the market. But then you have this, you know, axis, and you could call it what you want, but it's kind of an axis of evil. It's Iran, Russia, China, and, um, and North Korea. And that's not exactly... A, um, a power buildup you want to be adding to right now. No, that's, you know, too often the the narrative of fossil fuels is conflated with um, who owns the majority of them. So I share, you know, that concern when you talk about that axis you just mentioned. Um, you can't blame people um, for over the years associating uh, negative connotation with oil when they're really having the negative connotation with the large sovereigns that, that control large pieces. Um, so you have to, you have to dissect those two and then start to demonstrate what we can provide on from a domestic or a Western standpoint. Um, you saw Germany completely reverse course announce, uh, new, two new LNG import terminals. So they need, they need some help on the other side of who can, who can send them that gas. I mean, this, that was an overnight, decision they're facing realities and and again this is not um this can work in conjunction with a long-term transition for the globe um everything in moderation uh what we saw uh was this perfect storm of underperformance of shale companies uh not following everything in moderation uh we had a generational discovery and then we uh we incinerated over a trillion dollars of capital whether you want to look at uh, true bankruptcies or or equity loss due to over overproduction and, and over ramping it, um, so you didn't have the economic returns, and at the same time you had the growth of of um, this concept of we can switch overnight into into a call it a renewable future, um, and that's you know there's neither of those are on their own the answer um, we. We do need more investment in oil and gas um, for the health of uh, humans and the, and the planet. We're seeing, you know, a 40 million person population being attacked because we can't um, we can't counterpunch uh, or we can't willingly counterpunch without um, without heating the rest of the rest of Europe. So, um, and then on the flip side, you know, if we were to enact all the ambitions by 2030, we're going to emit more carbon, not less. Um, it is a massive undertaking um, to deploy, you know, EVs. I have one. I have a Ford Mustang Mach-E and had it, you know, four weeks now. It's a lot of fun. It's fast. I'm a car guy. So I wanted to A, see, see what the acceleration was like. B, I wanted to live with what what one of these is like to live with every day and go through the trials and the tribulations. And so far it's been easiest thing since sliced bread to plug it into the wall. Um, as soon, if there were no cost differences, um, it would fit my daily life just fine. But the mm-hmm. fact is there's a major cost difference. It's basically a Honda CRV size, uh, which is a $28,000 vehicle. And this was a $70,000 purchase. Now it's a lot faster than a Honda CRV. So it's got that. Yeah, it's got that going for it, but um, but there's a massive cost difference, and then it's being labeled as it's a huge environmental difference to the to the benefit 
and that's not the case when when it, this thing when these things have to get on global scale um you know there's lots of trade-offs that are not are not being um talked about so really it comes back to consumerism urbanization should we be taking 6000 pounds of mass to 60 miles an hour in 3.5 seconds and patting ourselves on the back as as being doing a environmental service no that's impossible that's not that's not the case so we have to look at things more pragmatically um and and we didn't uh but we didn't help our case in the last decade with our own business models we have shifted and in the first you know quarter and i'd say the last quarter of um of 2021 we're starting to demonstrate what a shale business model can do so we're taking out one of you know i had the the speech the three p's um pollution profit and perception we're taking out one of the arguments and that was the ability a sustainable business model on the profit side um but again that pendulum could have shifted too far um i think it's i think it's actually in a good spot for normal business conditions i think over the next you know one day to one month we'll see if we're in a global situation that um is outside of normal business conditions and in a wartime situation do we need a raise to a call and is that separate from a business model so um this will we'll we'll watch it live as it as it unfolds i guess well so all those comments are great um it's cool that you have a mustang i mean i had a preferred a, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to take a gasoline engine over just because, and I'm one of those people that it's like, there's a certain amount of percentage of the population that likes the smell of gasoline, you know, like I love it too. Gas. I always have a gas car. That's for sure. And then I, I couldn't, I have a gas, a diesel and a, and electric, but I couldn't believe, uh, I couldn't do Tesla. So that was the only thing I should love it, you know, American innovation, but uh, mm-hmm. something rubs me the wrong way about that type of market. There's many things, you know, he, th- that individual, I mean, he opened a, a showroom in Xinjiang in China, you know, mm. as a basically in January, just basically as a, as a telling the communist party, Hey, I'm here and I'm with you, um, in the place where you're, you're, uh, you're committing human rights abuses and genocide. So I'm, I'm not really comfortable with that, but he's got, he's kind of all over the fence. I like that. He's, you know, a little unique and pro energy and has come into Texas, but I, I, I think he's basically in it for himself. So I don't, I don't necessarily trust him on multiple mm-hmm. fronts. And I don't trust folks, tech guys, especially who are leaning into the, uh, the communist party in China. But did you watch, did you watch the first, uh, or not the first, but I watched his live stream when we first went into the pandemic and it was summer of 2020 and, uh, he hosted a live stream in Nevada and all the all the, the the crowd had to be in their cars in Tesla. So instead of clapping, they would honk. And I just happened to chime in, and uh, I saw that he was pushing three hundred pounds. And I've never seen one. And I was like, oh, I want to see what this looks like. And so he's up there and um, looked fine, by the way. And he was talking about his products, and he said, "And we found we've got ten thousand acres in Nevada. We just leased it, and we're going to." We're going to grab the earth. We're just going to take out our own lithium, and then we're going to put the earth back. And all the t- all the Teslas started honking, and and they're cheering for open pit mining. You know the the yep. the the worst of of what we have been pushing against. Um, and but he says it, and everybody everybody honks and cheers for it. Oh, so absolutely. it's just fascinating. It is well, it is fascinating, and I think this year. Um, so a couple things. I you you make a lot of really good points, but I think that the. I mean, mining, we all know. I mean, anyone in the energy business and anyone, I mean, I grew up around commodities, so coal and, and wheat and, and oil and gas, and I'm third generation 
oil and gas from from pumpers in the family. And so everyone knows that if you're going to, thank you, uh, if you're going to have an infrastructure boom, if you're going to build out, I don't care if you're building out windmills, wind turbines, if you're if you're installing solar panels, if you're building charging stations, you will increase emissions. If you're building crap, if you're build, you're going to increase emissions because it, it is powered by, unless it's powered by a damn Tesla, which it's not, you're going to build it, you're going to increase emissions. And unless your grid is 100% wind and solar, which it's not, nor could it be, or should it be, you, you're going to have emissions on increasing, you know, your electric on the electric vehicle side. Um, so we know that. And, and I really struggle with this. I, I've, I think you've probably heard it in previous podcasts. And I talked about it with a lot of folks is that I do really, really struggle now with this, the decarbonization effort, because unless you can prove to me you're decarbonizing, yeah, I kind of fall. I can't, I, it needs to be, the hole needs to be poked into it. And I, I, I get frustrated a little bit with, with the shale folks to this for 2021 in, in and not just shale, but every business and the way they've sort of leaned into ESG and only the E, not the S or the G. They can say it, but they don't do crap. Um, uh, so they, it's basically everybody's focused on their environmental stuff. And I mean, I was very disheartened that, you know, I've always loved EOG, um, but EOG just said their 2040 net zero plan. And I just got, ugh, you know, that's I, it means crap. It means absolutely nothing. So everybody's got their 2040, 2050 net zero plan. And we're talking about. We could we could put all these producers in the entire U.S. collectively, all of them, every single oil and gas producer in the U.S. drop their emissions to zero for production, and I think it's one percent of U.S. total um, GHG emissions. So it's a drop in the bucket, and yet everybody's killing themselves to do it. And what's really I have a problem with is that that's the it's the output, right? So it's now I think a lot of these operators, truthfully, did get lucky that their earnings calls came before this Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, yeah. Because the the call to sort of, we're giving all this money to sharehold, back to shareholders and we're increasing our variable dividends and special dividends and everything. You know, that's great. And as I, I have a small amount of stocks and, and I, I bought, I had a tiny little bit of cash from dividends sitting in my TD Ameritrade. And so I went ahead and bought some EOG and some Pioneer before they, before they, and I had never owned any of Pioneer, just not to trade. I don't trade it just for, just to sit in there. And I just thought, you know, because before, they, they popped up and everybody was going to do their special dividends and all that stuff. But the problem I have with that is that it is not just about shareholders. You are producing a product, right? Your company is, is one business. It is to drill and complete wells and produce a commodity and sell it and to make money. And right now they're making tons of money on it. And that's great. I'm okay with companies being profitable. But if all of that profit is being turned back to shareholders. I am not at some point, you know, you're, you're going to make more money by putting the drill bit back in the ground. Um, because one, you're, you're quite good at what you're doing. You have good rock from um, you know, folks like EOG and Pioneer and those like you have good rock. And then, it's, then it comes to this point of, you know, you, the market isn't, it, it, the market is calling for more crude oil. And I, I'm cautious to say, I, I'm cautious to tell everyone, go out and produce crude oil. The privates are going to do anyway, um, because I don't know, I don't think this is going to last that long. Geopolitics may keep oil prices up, but in terms of demand, I don't, we're are sitting on the precipice here today of, of demand turning the corner um, because this inflation and these oil prices are not sustainable. So I'm just a little bit uncomfortable with operators not giving, uh, paying real credence to that. And I don't like that, um, you know, all of them have this, this pie in the sky thinking. I mean, I've been telling clients this for weeks is that there's a very clear view in and outside the industry, but definitely with most CEOs and executives. And I'm sure you hear this is that oil prices have one place to go and one direction, and that is north. And they basically say it's because, well, the forecast show or we're, we're, we're just the supply and demand. It's, and, and that's what all the forecasts are showing is that, you know, we don't have, we don't, we don't have enough investment and we have a shortfall of investment and, you know, demand's going up. And that's the answer. Like, and I think, well, you know, 
you, you're roughly my age, I'm guessing. So in our lifetime, we have not seen that shortfall of investment materialize. And in fact, we tend to produce when prices go up and the market's ass, the production comes out with it. Yeah, forecasts have been wrong a time or two in the last, uh, you know, forever. Um, so, so you got to look at, you got to look at both sides and, and you just mentioned, you know, the, the pendulum that we're talking about and that for a decade, we were too wrong the other way. Um, and, and maybe the, there's, there's, uh, imposed under investment, uh, too wrong, too wrong on the under investment side. And, and we'll have to see, um, but it's a healthier place to come from. I mean, we're, we're just what, um, almost, almost 24 months, I guess, 22 months away from negative $37 oil pricing. Um, and then myself, uh, lobbying, uh, something I never thought I would do before for, uh, government, uh, to jump in. And the reason I did that at that time was, um, I was looking at Parsley Energy's cost of capital, and we had just accessed the debt market uh, with a really winning um, rate of about four and a half percent. And our peers at the time were five percent. And I just looked at how far we had come as a company uh, approaching a $10 billion enterprise company. And to get a four and a half percent, you know, we had to have hitting on all cylinders, had to have the ratings just right. And I was talking to Ann Fox at Nine Nine Energy Services and and the different uh, vendors and suppliers to us. This was a month preceding this, and just how their cost of capital was increasing for, or from the lack of investors, and there was no appetite for the for the service providers to take on new debt, and how that had to be you know they're in business to be in business, so they have to they have to run that through their models, they have to put that in their pricing, and then that comes to us. Um, now we didn't want to do vertical integration. Okay, why wouldn't we just own some of these companies and then we could play our lower cost of capital and keep our cost down? No, uh, that's that's gone horribly in the past for many reasons. You lose that that will, that motivation to um, of your. Once you have a contract with someone, service goes down. So they're always fighting for new service uh, to to earn the service, and and then it just accelerated when we saw you know all these. Uh, oil came down to about 40 and then it was trickling down to 30 and we saw this wave of inventory coming and I thought man if if oil goes in 20s we're all going to have to shut down rigs and the service side is going to pop and they're never going to have access to capital again um, until it's too late and we're going to lose hundreds of thousands of jobs in Texas and that can't be good for the state of Texas and maybe the railroad commission would want to put in some put in some stops. And at the same time, we also saw that um, Saudi Arabia was offering, this was when oil was uh, $40. They were offering how much could, um, how much could refineries, they called the Texas Gulf Coast refineries and said, how much would you take at minus $30? This was days before they, they went into the price war um, and then it ended up imploding. So they knew it, they knew going in, they were just going to ship. So they did dump, um, oil on our shores and we weren't as we didn't have as we didn't have direct proof of that so um couldn't well, really they own the they own the motiva uh so that they, they own a refinery in the gulf so they're able to uh and they do their whatever plus or minus 10 percent uh w- they, they never say they they 
change the pricing, but basically each month they can go to that refinery and they can say plus or minus 10%, this is what you're taking it at. And so they were doing that stuff, you know, previously, but yes, uh, Mohammed bin Salman single-handedly, you know, tanked the oil market because. Yeah. So if we were playing in a fair market, then, then let's play in a fair market and be capitalists, Mm -hmm. but we were not, we were not in a market condition at that, at that point in time. Um, so that was a little bit of a digression past to the uh, re- to the past. Of- Hence the justification of, of where you stood on the railroad commission thing. Do uh, looking back now at that and looking back at that, like uh, at that stance. And the only reason I, I say that is because, you know, I did hear and, and, you know, if you don't want to comment on this, that's totally OK. But I, I when I hear operators um dig on other operators or dig on anyone in the industry, it doesn't look really good. Um, and, and I always get concerned, especially if uh, this administration does not like oil and gas. I, I, I wholeheartedly believe that oil and gas and, and hydrocarbons need to be very, very careful about how they work with policymakers within this administration. Um, but that being said, when, so when, when Scott Sheffield mentioned in his earnings call, um, and I, you know, clearly they're they're a little concerned about private operators, you know, growing and, and increasing output. Um, but when he mentioned that private operators need to be regulated by EPA, I, that's a red flag to me. Um, one, you shouldn't want the oil and gas industry. I mean, that if you think they're going to regulate just private operators, you're outside your mind. If you open that Pandora door, like that's going to crack wide open into your business. Um, and it was just not, it was just a kind of a mean thing to say. Um, and absolutely with this administration being an oil and gas producer, like what the hell that's a (laughs) EPA regulating any bit of that. Like that's a, it could be devastating for the industry, not just, just private operators. So I thought that that's just when you think about regulations in Colorado, they've done it, you know, and I worked in DC. So when you, when, when you le- want regulations to help you, you have to be careful that it sets precedent that it just keeps on going. So it's just one of those things I, I was thinking about that in context of the Texas Road Commission thing of, you know, it's in Texas is different. So you can sort of you can yeah, it take it back out. But the rest of the country isn't so much in Colorado. You know, when the oil and gas industry was like, hey, regulate us, it never stopped. And now you can't get right. from it in Colorado. And that was that was I'll just jump back to the proration. <laughs> and, uh, I think that was the. Um, the biggest slippery slope and, and some input I took, uh, you know, making calls around, you know, who agrees, who doesn't agree. Actually, at that point, uh, most of the, the small guys, uh, more so than Parsley Energy, were, were for it. I mean, we had, we were, we were healthily hedged. Uh, there was nothing particularly in it for Parsley aside from yep. I saw, or I, and I still, I'll double down on this. I mean, when you're in a unusual non-market condition, um, there should be, there should be boundary conditions and, and a framework. Um, and, and I think it played out exactly as I was concerned about it. And if, if we could have stemmed the negative 37 oil, if it would have landed at 10, just think of the in, in, insurance actuary business. Yep. I mean, it's happened now, negative 37. So yep. When you're putting on a, a hedge position, you have to calculate what if, and now it, now you can go to that. Um, so it's it's driven a huge amount of cost, uh, kind of this silent hand of cost throughout the system. Um, what happened to the service providers uh, was as feared, um, and now of course you know pricing is is back for them, but they just don't have the staff and the labor. Uh, there are people that just don't want to come back into this industry uh a the delta of our our pricing is not as large as it is used to be in 2011 to 14 
to an Amazon uh, warehouse, Amazon driver, when we're talking about truckers, et cetera. Um, so, so I really viewed it and probably naively so, or maybe naively so, um, as, as a non-market condition with a point in time and, um, the regulatory bodies, uh, or the framework in Texas and the pro, um, business attitude in Texas, I thought would have been able to put a condition together that that unwinds itself. Um, that's naive because I'm not a politician. And once, once someone tastes a little bit of power, uh, they maybe keep it and never relinquish it. And as you're seeing, but I, th- I th- in Colorado and others, but I, I think that's, that's more to do with their, their bias towards, they're not biased towards business. Um, they're, they're biased towards other, other drivers there. So, um, you know, it's a challenge. Those are, and, those are all fair points, though, and I and I yeah. appreciate the the retrospective look and the the honesty there because I I don't know what I would have done in that situation. I know that that uh, you guys and Pioneer were on in favor, and I know that Exxon and and Diamondback were against it, and Exxon and Diamondback sort of threatened because they they did have the largest rig count. And when you look back now at it, and you look at the devastation of the rig count, and I actually I think this this comment on the service providers because I get a lot of I work with a lot of service companies honestly, and I and I actually love. I love working with them. I love working with, with all companies and EMPs included is that um, because service providers, I can actually move the needle for them. It's, it's public, private, small guys. I can because they uh, they tend to be extremely reactive. You know, they spool up and they spool down and I want them to have as much knowledge about the market and, and, and as, as possible um, so that we, you know, they can, you know, I know who they're targeting, why they're targeting them, you know, what's important about that. And it's like, well, it doesn't matter which depth they're drilling at. It does. I, it, I love that. I want to tell you which depth they're drilling. I want to tell you why they're targeting that formation. I want to say, do they have longevity in this? Is this a short, is this, are they going to do this for two months and leave? Or are they going to come back and, 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 and be there for a long time? And, you know, permits and all this stuff matters w- with that simple data that you can make really talk. Um, mm-hmm. all that being said, this sir, these service companies make me really, I get anxious a lot because they do spool up really fast and they, they spool down and you hear things like, well, we don't have enough service providers and, you know, or, or other service providers making money. And, and I, I put a line in a, in one of my presentations I gave to a client and I know that client spit it back and, and said that that line was great. And it was that I get a lot of phone calls from service companies that I'm trying to work with or cold calls. And I hear a lot about, um, the ESG side, the, like the green energy. And I, I mean, I it gives me almost nearly a heart attack because, um, this is a business that a lot of companies are barely making money in the business that they're in. You know, they're, they're not actually profitable in the business that they're in, which is oil and gas. And now they're trying to pivot into like, green tech. And I'm like, where, you know, what is the green? I mean, it's, it's completely off the wall. They don't even know what the green tech is. They just have this, you know, fear and this understanding and they're a year late, right? You know, everybody sort of leaned in at the beginning of January and February last year. And even then you're kind of it, it just on, on a whim, but it was sort of this, this concept to me of just this moving quickly um, and mm-hmm. sort of chasing and not actually being profitable. But right now, the service side is that the, the real question is, look, if oil prices are hundred bucks a barrel and these companies are not profitable, when will they ever be? And I, I always tell people, you know, the service company, like the oil and gas business, you know, it evolves. And this is not how the service sector will look five years. I don't, I mean, it cannot look this way five years from now, because to your point before, I mean, service companies were, were making money, you know, in 2014 because, but they're, yep. 
their structures were different, right? They were they were selling, you know, sand and and fluids and chemicals were all sort of included in the package, and now that's all separate, and those are all out, outside of it, and, and those work with the operators. So I think that that aspect of how people don't really appreciate how the server side evolved, and it is nimble, it is really fast, it is flexible, um, but they also haven't been able to raise their rates in tandem with these prices. Um, right. And that is something that a lot of operators have not uh, really, you know, explained clearly, of course, on the earnings calls of just the, hey, well, we haven't seen these massive price increases by, you know, the service guys, which they're going to have to see. And it's, I'm not saying anybody needs to gouge, but you heard it in earnings, service earnings calls of the inflation that they're seeing. I mean, energy feels energy prices. I mean, diesel prices are up, not gas prices are up. Like, so all these components are up and, and eventually people have, to, you have to get to a point where you don't want these service providers to go under either. You need these guys to be making enough money to where they have a stable business. And, you know, yes, you can weather the storms together. You can sort of move down together and you can move back up. And, you know, it can't be just one entity taking all the chunk of the pie. Well, this goes, I agree with you hundred percent. And it goes back to, uh, smoothing off the peaks and valleys, you know, when, when you're at the absolute base, do you put your foot on a vendor or do you treat them as a partner and say, Hey, Hey, I have three other vendors that are looking to keep their doors open. Um, what is it going to take to keep your doors open? And, and I've seen in my career, even in, in individual business units within the company and the leaders take different approach and you have to constantly, sit them down and talk about, Hey, hold on. Um, this is going to swing the other way. And then when now we're, now we're approaching a peak, you know, the lag of investment and now, you know, they have to reactivate on the pricing side. Um, you know, those people that you smooth the valleys with, they're going to smooth the peaks too. Uh, also they're going to find other ways to get that, that top dollar rate, you know, on their margin, on their fringe clients. Um, so if you can, if you can have a little longer term view, it's just very, very challenging in this industry. We also uh, did a little bit of vertical integration. Uh, we bought a rig company, had eight rigs. We converted into two horizontal rigs. Um, but the labor component of that um, at the time, it was, you know, roughly, you know, in 2014, we were getting quoted $28,000 a day rig. And th those rigs uh, were three gen sets, uh, 5,000 pound uh, pressure top ends, um, they were set up probably for, you know, two mile well was a stretch for them, horizontal well, and twenty they were asking $28,000 a day, and the labor component of that was probably 14000 a day or their cost uh, on that. Uh, you fast forward to today, you know, the current rig rates, or I say current, coming into the year were somewhere in the nineteen dollars to $22,000 a day rate. Um but their labor and their expense component was probably sixteen to seventeen thousand dollars a day because they're the rigs are more robust. They have four gen sets. There's more depreciation on this stuff, so their margins were squeezed. Uh, so now they're trying to ask in that twenty eight thousand dollar day rate, and they're still getting a ton of pushback. So it's a good example to agree with you that versus two thousand fourteen, the day rates aren't even aren't even back on the drilling side. But it also comes back to policy. And when I'm trying to say, think of things longer term, um, you need you need a little bit of certainty. And all those measures, you know, as much as I want to be constructive um, with anybody to do business with, uh, both political side, how do we come to a solution? How do we win here together? What are your big concerns? Uh, okay, carbon emissions. Well, let's 
let's look at, are you talking about in one state or are you talking about across the globe? Because everything that we produce, it helps mitigate uh, about 15 tons uh, per CO2 or per barrel equivalent from somewhere else that is produced. So, or, or are you going after something else? But those early policy uncertainties, shutting down uh, for really arbitrary reasons, um, uh, pipeline example, pipelines as an example, no no federal permits as another example, even though it was two months and they got back on, on the yeah. trolley. That drives uncertainty. And when you're trying to build partnerships with a vendor network and let's say a frat company needs to go out uh, and sign a long-term contract for their fluid end replacements with a small uh, fabrication shop in North Houston. And that company needs to hire people for two years. It all has impact. So you need to drive a stable environment. And we're really getting outside of that with our policy. Uh, we're trying to drive um, outcomes through policy instead of making frameworks for for market conditions. And it's uh, so I, I do agree with you that we need to we need to reboot on that approach for sure. Well, and I think that just means that, and I, I always come at from if you know business, you're, you're explaining just I mean how business works, and I always tell people that business flourishes in uncertainty and you know predictability. I mean, so when you add unpredictability, and that's what was really frustrating about at the beginning of this administration when most people didn't even know it, but it was this uh, piece of paper, this this uh, fr- from the Secretary of In- or Acting Secretary of Interior, you know, this piece of paper with a stamp on it that just said it included these permits. It was poorly written. I think it was actually technically illegal. Um, and yet it was done. And and actually, we've had lots of things with this administration and other ones that have been illegal and then pushed back in court. But that that really impacts business. And so I think that people don't realize that you have to have this stability and predictability in for business to to thrive and to flourish. And if you want to look at sort of what not to do or, yes, you can talk the talk about reducing, you know, basically nobody wants to have oil and gas anymore in the world. So they focus on, um, you know, policing you know, from the regulatory side, but not doing anything about the actual demand side. And I don't want them to, frankly, to do anything about the demand side. But the reality is they get into a situation where in the UK and Europe, where they have uh, production has declined massively for for gas production. Um, and yet their consumption has not declined in tandem over the past 10 years. And they get to where they have this big gap. And um, and their, you, those imports are, are coming from Russia and other places. And they're in the position that they're in. And you mentioned, too, before, I mean, there's two things I wanted to rewind back on. That was, Lost. you know, you did mention in Europe. Um, you know, they're reversing policy. And I think it was, uh, and I tried to recap this yesterday when I was talking with Justin, but um, the chancellor, a new chancellor of Germany did give a speech two days ago. And it was a, it was a 30 minute speech. And I mean, within that speech, this was, this was a wartime speech talking about how they are adding money, you know, how how they're increasing immediate funding to military efforts for one, uh, two, that they were putting 2% of their GDP going forward to military spending. They were finally going to be hitting their native requirements because they hadn't been. Um, And then lastly, that on energy, and they said, yes, we want to continue to pursue renewable energy because we want renewable energy to help us to get off dependence from Russia, but also they were going to, as you pointed out, they're going to be investing in um, in natural gas imp- imports and natural gas storage. Uh, they didn't mention coal, which they are thinking about not not reducing as quickly, and nuclear uh, within that speech. But those are also on the table. So the reality is, is that you know when you push too hard on something, or you, you have to even if you if even if you do something, uh, the world around you changes, and you have to be flexible and adaptable to that. And the oil and gas, I think. Is included in that, um, and in addition to that, you know the the minus thirty seven 
oil, I think to me is still fascinating because I believe that the CME group, I don't think it was supposed to technically go negative. Um, I don't think it was allowed to go negative. And then they uh, basically changed the rules the weekend before to let the contracts go negative. Okay, sorry, folks, we had a bit of a technical difficulties there. So if you if there's a, a disconnect in the conversation, um, that's real because uh, I was talking to myself and uh, I don't know where where Matt was on that conversation. He, he was disconnected. So we're bringing well, this back together. I we got mentioning- reconnected and we were joking that it was the Russians uh, attacking us after after I challenged them in a tweet that we got, a, I said, hey, we're trying to replace your your imports, which is unbelievable that we're importing from Russia. It should stop immediately here in the U.S. Um, but uh, but yeah, we had a we had to up our website's uh, denial of service defenses uh, after that. So after that tweet, yeah. So we we were just saying, I think it's in total. It's only it's it, it has increased actually over the last year considerably, but it's it's still about five hundred thousand barrels a day total between products and crude. That we import from Russia, so we were both saying that we can um, we can bounce this out pretty quickly. There are things that you know, as a, the U.S. shale industry, this should be a hey, can you produce that? We hundred percent can, and I'm pretty damn sure that we can get the refineries to run a little bit hotter um, and and bounce out that product as well, so that we can just full stop, no more Russian crude oil. Or- you know, and that's a great idea where it should be set, at, you know, in this little bucket of hey, this is a this is a wartime response. And it's happening under these conditions immediately. And um, I think between all the operators, that should that should be an easy call to have happen. Yeah, and you know, I think it's this is I, I haven't we haven't talked about you know recession risk, which I keep mentioning, and I think it's it's very serious. So I want to touch on that. But you know, when you were saying the minus thirty seven before, um, and I'm not sure where in this the lag of, of the podcasting lag, I was mentioning that I don't think minus 37. So when, when oil prices went negative, I remember watching it as we all were probably watching and going, is it going negative? Is It's going negative. And I don't think it, or I don't think it was supposed to do that. Like, I don't think the CME group basically changed the rules the weekend before allowing the contract to go negative. And to me, that was another BS kind of yep. illegal thing. I think there was only 6 million barrels in total that got caught up in that sort of stuck at minus 37. Yep. So yes, million barrels of folks that on that end lot you know lost money however it just kind of was annoying because people really fixated on the market did and it, and it jaded the market and it certainly you know when people talk about the shortfall of investment now in air quotes you know minus 37 was certainly a component of that of like that everybody was just scared it drives me crazy though because and i start all my presentations now with this picture of myself on a tank battery because i, I always say i grew up around this business and i just want to like Keep everybody focused on this, okay? That's right. This is a boom and bust business. Yeah. When it is booming, nobody thinks it's going to bust again. And when it is busting, nobody thinks it's going to boom again. And right now, it's a, we're sitting at $104 oil. And if you feel comfortable here, you shouldn't. Yeah. This world is not a comfortable – this is not a comfortable place to be in. Prices are too high. The market's tanking. This is uh, – we have very high inflation. We have very high oil prices. And um, I'm going to about put a chart on LinkedIn and tweet, uh, tweet it is that oil prices and housing prices – and or Sorry, oil demand and housing prices in the U.S. move in perfect lockstep. You can chart them, put them on a chart and put hmm. oil, oil demand goes up, housing prices go up. And when housing prices come down, so does oil demand. And our average home prices in the U.S. are $500,000. Uh, the average home price in the U.S. and the average mortgage is nearing $500,000. We are at banana levels for, we're at way 
pre-2008, 2007 levels for this type of stuff. We added a trillion dollars in debt, just household debt, in 2021 alone. So in nominal terms, it was the highest rate of debt increase since 2007. And so, I mean, we're just at this sort of level where this is not, uh, this isn't good. No, there's so a lot of a lot of funny money pumping through the system. The one the one um, bullish point I have, or or just frame of reference or con- context, is we we get fixated on a hundred dollar a barrel oil. Now, granted, uh, uh, there's really unique conditions driving this right now, but that's just a a number, just like the negative thirty seven happened, and it's it's a number. But um, that is. E- equivalent it's much more bearable today than it was in 2007 and 2008 household incomes have grown savings have actually increased uh per per household um so and we didn't see demand destruction until you went into the recession it wasn't the 130 and 140 dollar oil uh in early 2007 that was causing demand destruction so i find that interesting you know it, it it is it is bearable um that is not going to pop the economy a hundred dollar oil it was your leading it's it's sort of so when you stack all these up um it's your leading indicator i mean uh gdp uh and the the current account deficit there's some some leading indicators yep. that lead you into this and so when you look at oil demand and i do think it's important because the u.s is a transparent market right um and I, there's a, there's a million topics we're not hitting on, but when people look at oil demand, I always tell folks it's a it's look back for the global oil demand. You're constantly looking back and you're revising the data, and that's what happened. You know, the IEA just revised their data for for 2019 I, and 2020. I think what the IEA and doing is doing is criminal with their it, it, with it, their 2030 forecast. It's literally putting countries at risk, and and they're they're not showing an. I actually talked to a German reporter about a month ago, um, and she said that her her son, when they, she lives in in New York, and she said mm-hmm. that when they shifted from an oil boiler um, system for heat to natural gas, her son moved out of the house for about a month. She was so, he was so upset at them for being a traitor and not not. Um, not doing their part. And she said, well, we need to heat the home during the winter. We can't put solar panels. That's what he was arguing for. And now this was a month ago and, and they were experiencing the high pricing in, in Germany. And, and she just said, I said, what's the sentiment like over there? And she said, a decade ago, we just feel like we weren't told the whole story. And we still feel like we're, we're leading on a lot of fronts, but um, you know, we weren't told the consequences and, and that the, the way that the IEA is promoting, you know, this, um, I talked to someone who believed that in 2030 oil demand was going to be 30 million barrels a day. And that's how they're running their, their business and their Mm -hmm. investments around it. And that's disingenuous. It's dangerous. And countries are being run that way. And, and we're seeing the, the implications. So, uh, I'll point out here today, you were one of the first people and industry leaders, I would say, that agrees with, I say it is 100% criminal. What Fatih Barol and IEA have done, and he needs to be called out for it. And at, I, what his goals are, I don't know if he's running for office or what he's doing, but what the international, people need to start asking where they're getting their money, what has happened to them, because they're part of 
releasing right now they're doing a coordinated strategic release of 60 million barrels a day of oil and so their job is supposed to be about oil right and no they're now focused on this uh the net zero 2050 which was a thought piece which turned into his best work ever which has now turned into everything on their website is ie net 2050 and if you look at those charts on 2030 i don't know if people have seen it on 20 by 2030 or 2040 because now it's the 2050 scenario but they 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 fast forward the charts to 2030 and 2040. We have to reduce natural gas demand globally by 60% by like 2030 from today's levels. And you literally can't, the, the only thing that's going to save this world, um, e- including with emissions, is natural gas. Yeah. I mean, to just go forward for anything. So it's banana world. And I always tell people, you know, two years ago when I was going through this, I was telling folks, you know, and, and my clients, it will bankrupt countries. Like their scenarios uh, and the cost, by the way, the new estimates from the International Renewable Energy Agency, which uh, a lot of folks also say they're criminal, is um, 146 trillion, um, and I'm hearing numbers of almost like 200 trillion. These are Bananaville <laughs> figures of what it's going to cost to just to to get us all renewable. And the perfect example is like I think in you know I, Germany is a great example in terms of what's happening, and I think. Uh, Terry Bros, the podcast that just dropped this week. If you haven't listened to it, it's awesome because it's all European energy policy. And he goes into the magic math that he air quotes magic math that the regulators have, you know, and I met him on a panel I did at the beginning of this month with the European, with the global gas center. And, um, we, my panel that I was moderating was the European energy crisis. And I had a German utility provider on the panel. And I said, Hey, you know, I just don't buy that, that y'all are okay with spending this, the, Average consumers okay with having the highest electricity prices in the world, and he says, "You know, I think we are." And I was like, "Well, you might think that." And I kind of think that sometimes when I talk to CEOs, if they're like, "Well, I'm okay at these price levels," I'm like, "Okay, of course you are. You're making crap loads of money. Other people can't handle this inflation, these oil prices." And I think these German utility providers, you know, they keep saying this of like, "This is fine. We're going to do this." Well, one of the guys showed his chart, and he shows, and it's on this this webinar. You can look at it, but he shows his chart, and he says, "This is what we're supposed to hit." you know, all of our emissions and everything, we can't do it. We probably won't hit this because it's just not going to happen. And in Colorado, I just heard something yesterday was that um, it's, you know, uh, people want to get rid of natural gas in homes. They want to get natural gas in small engines. I think there's actually a bill to try to get rid of uh, natural gas in uh, generators, um, into lawnmowers, into everything, um, or get that would be gasoline. Um, But the cost to actually convert a home to fully electric it's 30 grand. So to basically get out all your natural gas and everything, it's 30 grand. So you're talking, you're talking like tens of billions of dollars if you were to actually do this. I mean, the numbers are the numbers are insane. The efficiency is insane. And heat pumps, which everyone, if you listen to Columbia University and all these stuff, uh, when they talk about like, oh, we can just convert this over to heat pumps, they're not efficient and they don't work at low temperatures. Well, we're addressing things. Well, first of all, you know, I think we would both be in favor of everything in moderation, everywhere we can, uh, making improvements, A, in our own operations, doing things with less emissions. Um, so it's really hard to get caught in this trap of sounding like you're not supportive of all that, but talking reality at the same time. But but we're fortunate uh, in our lives that uh, we are disconnected from um, from billions of people on this planet and, and their plight and their their goals and uh you know another podcast i recently listened to it's called uh it's by barry weiss um but she interviewed a guy rob henderson and it's called luxury beliefs and it's about um it's about 
this disconnection and and saying things that that may sound good but really hurt the masses but the people that are saying these things have not had to come up through they have not had to live with what they're they're preaching um so so it's a and and that's what we're talking about here it's it's these things have major consequences on the price of a tortilla uh what we're seeing in in wheat uh prices right now in corn obviously with what's going on in ukraine i had no idea that um they had such a large i grew up in indiana so uh, i was a little a homer okay we're back so what i was most surprised about was corn and wheat and i grew up in indiana uh in the oil field but plenty of corn around so a little bit of a homer when it came to corn and i couldn't believe the global impact that ukraine has on on corn um so those those types of things the uh, the inflationary on on our food and, and these uh these rins and and the ethanol mandates are driving up the cost of food as well so um the policymakers just aren't aren't as connected with Rin, with joe Rin, public renewable identification number you really have to be like a corn person and ethanol person to really understand you know i don't know if somebody's dropped rin on this podcast uh, <laughs> myself. Yep. so yeah previous life when i studied ethanol and, and rins but yeah great great little anecdote and i i so i'm grew up commodities as well and didn't know your indiana corn boy but my my grandfather my mom's side it was a wheat farmer and um, so I grew up around that my whole life. And then, you know, I had a lot of relatives working at the coal mines, uh, which will be shut down within within years now, um, and the power plant. And then, you know, my dad pumped oil wells, my grandpa pumped oil wells. And so um, fortunate in a lot of ways to really, really actually understand commodities and, and wasn't raised with, with, with money. So, I mean, we did work for everything we got and very strong work ethic and wouldn't change it for, for anything. Um, but it, there's a difference in understanding that of like where stuff comes from and how, you know, mm-hmm. what the cost of it is. And, you know, wh- if the wheat was too wet and, and taking it to the, you know, taking it to get sold and, and not, you know, getting crappy prices because you're in the middle of nowhere, it's dry land wheat farming and you got mountains around you and lava rocks. And I mean, you're barely going to break even. And then of course, oil prices are up and that's great for my dad, but it's bad for my grandpa. I mean, it was just something yep. you, you grow up knowing this stuff. And I do think there's something about, of a, uh, and I was driving, you know, I was driving my German Shepherd and I'm driving my F-150 back to, to my house Sunday. And I was thinking about, you know, all the stuff, with the, you know, watching people and their families in Ukraine pack their lives into a backpack, you know, and, yeah. and folks today, you know, they have women on BBC talking about, um, you know, they're, they're worried about escaping to get their kids, uh, you know, chemo treatment because they got all these cancer patients, yeah. these children. And so this is nothing, you know, we're, we're we have very little to worry about, uh, you know, sort of in the, in the standpoint that we're in. And, and it, it, we, we are in an advantageous position um, to think about this. But that all being said, this uh, thing about, you know, the recession risk and and oil production and, and you know we talk about these leading indicators but these grain prices are we are seeing these high prices not just across every single indicator for inflation in the US and i point out that you know between 2019 and 2021 there were only two countries that had a higher rate of inflation than the US in the entire world and that was Turkey and Brazil and that is not a category those are not categories you want to fall into um, and we so we had major inflation in the in the US and we've you know just now i think really seeing it in terms of you know your electric bills and everything and you're going to the grocery store you're hitting at the gas pump i am absolutely seeing it i'm feeling it and i think the reality is is that we could see a things could be curbing pretty quickly in the US and i always point that out because the US is 
is actually where you can see, I mean, you know, the paper contract for the NIMAX settles in Cushing, Oklahoma. Like we have a transparent oil market in the U.S. We, we know weekly demand levels in the U.S. We know where oh, crude oil is at. So, yes, you might not know the whole world perfectly, but you do know where crude oil demand sits in the U.S. And so when you look at the recession in 2008, we did lead the world. I mean, the, the world was shy of, didn't even drop 2 million barrels a day of, of demand. But w- the U.S. led that with o- well over a 2 million barrel a day demand drop in crude oil. And that, was, um, that wasn't necessarily because of we had $140 oil. That was a component to it. It was because we had a recession. And usually yeah. all these things sort of move up together, right? High prices for everything, you know, inflationary increases. And then you have something that curbs us. And a war and, you know, central runs on central bank, everything. We're, we're kind of, we're in that territory. Wars can do that. And um, I would say, I would say now it's just that this administration's in a really hard spot with this massive inflation. But the U.S. consumer, um, I don't think looks as good as people think. It, savings are sort of edging down. Inflation is eating into this, and you know, and and these high oil prices in tandem with high everything prices and those housing statistics I gave you, it doesn't look very good right now. It actually looks well, scary. We- we should also, it does, it does. Uh, there's a lot weighing on people. And now you add this uncertainty that affects the psyche and and the markets are psychology. That's that's what it is. Uh, are we feeling good about things or not? And it uh, doesn't feel too good. Uh, look, talking about those, those kids being evacuated and, and trying to get cancer treatment, that has to impact things. Um, I think we should take a separate bet. Do we think today's Tuesday, March 1st, do we think a week from today, Tuesday, March 8th, there'll be an Iranian deal. I think there will be. Um, yeah, I think there will be. If I'm a betting per and I am a betting person, I think there will be because there has to be. Um, in, in truth, I don't think it's good. I, I'm, I'm concerned that it's yeah, a very bad. It's path. another example. It's another example of we got ourselves backed into this corner and now we're doing everything but the, the practical stuff that we should have been doing. But right. So I, I think, um, but you know what, they've been trying for over a year. So the the reality I just want to paint to that is that they've been trying for this for, for hmm. um, since last summer. And this administration has absolutely wanted to, because it would have given them a lot of cover actually to, you know, you could, you could impact U.S. output in the, and, and um, it's sort of opposite of what Obama did, right? Where they could sanction these, because the U.S. was producing so much crude oil, they hmm. could actually, you had a lot of maneuverability on the geopolitical side. Opposite is the, the U.S. administration could impact, you know, oil and gas production in the U.S. if the globe is producing it, which is what they've been very sort of clear that that's what they want to do. Uh, Saki has said that in, in press conferences is that they can sort of impact global output or, or rely on global output and impact at U.S. here. So I think that they've wanted to do that and it hasn't happened because uh, Iran is not quite playing ball and we have very hardline leadership in Iran. So I, I think it may happen. Um, so if I'm betting with you, I'd agree it's probably going to happen because I think they're they're in a rock and a hard spot and the world desperately needs another million barrels a day output. However, I think it is a bad, bad call. Um, and if you are, we already are in trouble with a very strong China, Russia alliance that people are, the market is not paying attention to that. Uh, in addition to the recession stuff, I'm very worried about, I am, I am very seriously worried about, you know, there's 146 billion in trade that almost 147 billion in trade between China and, and Russia that takes place. And, it, and, the market's been really naive to say, well, China just doesn't know what's going on. And I don't think they really want this. And <laughs> they, they may not want war in Ukraine for sure. But if you don't think they knew about it, I mean, literally Putin and Xi Jinping just spoke on the phone days after the invasion happened. So th- there's a direct line of communication. They absolutely know what's going on. And they waited until for- after the Olympics. 
Exactly. And they, they've coordinated yeah. this and they, the uh, big deal that they signed uh, BBC just, they do BBC actually does a really good job with their real story. They do like a one hour dive on these things and they just did one on, on China and, and Russia. And there's a, there's a woman on it, Bonnie Lynn, who works at CSIS. Um, and she was talking about that big agreement that they signed. Um, and, you know, even sometimes she's a little bit more like, this isn't such a big deal, but that huge agreement that they signed. And, and as people know, I spend a lot of time on, on working on the China stuff. Um, it, it, it is really significant. It's a very, very historical uh, document. There's a lot of meat to it. So I don't think it, if folks think the end goal is, is uh, Ukraine, I think they're, extru- they're miscalculating. Um, because- well, it's also, re- I agree. And it's, you know, we kind of say, or I've said, you know, that chi- uh, Germany has, gotten themselves dependent on russia and xyz but what are we doing with china i mean we love five dollar t-shirts we love we are so dependent on china uh, the covid test i i took you know they're made in china this is this is two years into the pandemic where we were worried about our supply chain and the tests we're taking are are made in china and um I don't know how we say we have leverage against them unless we want to greatly affect our way of life. So if they ever decide to align um, more more overtly with Russia and, or do something negative, I don't know our our repercussions without greatly affecting our way of life. So maybe we need to start, you know, diversifying some some supply chain more proactively here because it's it's not pretty. Well, and that's why I'm really, really big on the climate change piece, because I don't think people appreciate that how nefarious China's role in promoting climate change is. And so it's great when you're promoting a problem, you're contributing to the problem, and then you're selling the solution. Yes. So, and, and China is very, very close with Europe. And so it's, it's a piece that's not highly looked at. That if you, But if you look at the trade relationships and the inability for Europe to push back on China, it's significant. And partly that's because Europe is so hell-bent on climate change. And, that's beca- and they're buying a lot of wind and a lot of solar from China. And so you can't criticize you know, China and Xinjiang without having you know, your hands slapped and getting repercussions. And China has done a very, very good job in making clear, you know, if you say anything against them, you know, if you're Australia and you say, hey, we want to look into the origins of the COVID crisis, you will no longer, your wine will be banned and your coal will be banned and and damn the cost, you know, and that's what happens. And so Europe's very much in that spot. And now Europe is extremely preoccupied um, with this this war in Ukraine. So if, if people haven't noticed, you're hearing very little on China. You know, they had a property sector that's backsliding and these these property developers are going under left, right and center. But no one's talking about it because we're very squarely focused on Ukraine. I'm not saying this has gone the way Putin has thought it would go. Um, so, you know, it, it seems like that their casualties have been higher. War never goes the way you exactly plan. But if you don't think this was coordinated and if you don't don't think that there's an incentive for these two countries to be sort of working together. It's huge. But the climate change thing really does drive me. It really does drive me batty. And that's why I harp on, you know, when you say you're decarbonizing, show me the numbers and show me how it works out globally, because um, China has an incentive to make sure they're selling you those wind panels and the solar. Or the, I'm sorry, the 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 wind turbines and the solar panels, which are made from forced labor um, in Xinjiang. And I'm very, very uncomfortable with that. Um, and so if you want to build it, you know, build it here, build it and get it from Canada, get it from a develop, developed country where you you know where that supply chain is coming from. But there's no excuse to get it from China. So T-shirts, yes, those are also made in Xinjiang. That's not great either. Um, so, yeah, separating yourself from China is huge. But it's 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 one of the many, many serious issues in this this long 
laundry list of issues. Oh, we we got a lot of work to do, don't we? We do. And uh, I know you need to run. I probably need to run too. But uh, before we wrap this up, uh, you, we I don't think folks know what you're... I, I love... You've probably talked about this in other podcasts, but your new company is called GreenLink, Green Lake Energy Ventures, correct? Yes. Yes. Green yeah. Lake Energy Ventures. So, you know, we we sold Parsley, merged it into Pioneer. Uh, it's very, it was a very tough kind of emotional process for me because strategically I was in agreement. I thought this is an amazing thing for the shareholder. But here I am two years into a, a young person with the opportunity to be a CEO of an amazing company. We had a great culture, um, uh, new, almost every employee, uh, got up over 500 employees. It was just a super rewarding thing to be a part of. And I knew what, what that impacts on the other side. So I didn't know what the next was going to look like. Um, so I was kind of twirling my thumbs, um, for family reasons, uh, just could not, you know, we had a decade sprint of 24 seven could not go back in, immediately into could not go back into the public world so what is this going to look like well uh here in in austin there's lake austin and uh you can see it uh from from the back patio of our house and um had a five-year-old seven-year-old boy and you know in the mornings during the pandemic we'd walk back there and during the week it's just calm as could be and it has a green hue to it so they would call it green lake and then we were brainstorming on on company names. And we didn't even know what the company exactly was going to do. We knew we were going to drill wells, or I knew I was going to drill wells. My boys didn't. Um, but, uh, so we, uh, Green Lake kind of, one of the boys helped come up with, with that name. So that was, that was a lot of fun. We live in the Westlake area of, of Austin and, and we didn't want to, okay, Westlake, Northgate, how bridge, Bridgeview, how do you get there? And, and that's where Green Lake landed from. Um, and then, you know, so we, we spooled together a couple acres in the Delaware basin. Um, it was just a, a few of us at the beginning and in early 21, um, and then, uh, started getting some traction and, and picked up, uh, close to 5,000 acres. So we have 14 people here at Green Lake and, uh, stood up an H and P rig and, and we're off and, and running. So it's a, it's a lot of fun. Um, but then there's another arm within Green Lake, Green Lake Technology Ventures, and we're making investments in kind of tangential support software um, to the industry. So our data lake that we're using, we're invested with the company that's building that out. And we're, we don't even have a server and um, have more computing power uh, at our house than we do in this office. And everything is remote. Everything is cloud. And we, we're just trying to build from a clean slate platform and uh and looking for some solutions there, uh, looking to invest actually on the ESG front, but on the technology front. So the, the, uh, the shovels and, and, you know, the, the things that can enable some of this, um, that's, that's what we're working on. So uh, on the website, I do have a, uh, a center tile that, uh, says renewables. I, I, at the beginning a year ago, I was looking at some renewables, the, the more I tried to understand it, the more I realized I don't understand it uh, with the tax equity dollars and all of that. And these were single digit returns. So I wasn't able to make any investments. So at some point I need to remove that tile, but, uh, but for sure in the support side on the, on the batteries and the technological front doing some investments over there. So um, it's been, it's been a busy year, but um, it's been, been a good, uh, a good new, I think for us. 
That's awesome. That's really awesome. And I appreciate giving that explanation because I think there was a, I, I, when I first talked to Matt, I, we were talking about, there was a, like this Twitter storm of um, people texting me of like, what's he doing now? And he's doing all this green stuff. And I'm like, I, I don't think that's what the company is. I mean, I, it was like, I don't think that's what the company is. And then you were telling me you were drilling. So one, I do think uh, you did have a fantastic reputation. So I, I didn't know you back then, but I, I knew that, um, you know, what I heard was great of that. If you want to meet a young leader in the space that really knows what they're doing and has a team behind him, um, that's, I only heard positive things. Oh, partially, wow. So Thank it wasn't you. surprising to me that you were able to, uh, you know, wrangle up the money um, and be able to drill some wells. So I think awesome. that's awesome. And wish you guys a lot of success. I would love to, you know, help out anywhere I possibly can. Um, and separate from that, you know, we also talked about, um, you, we were, it, when we first talked on the phone, we were talking about like, uh, responsibly sourcing barrels. Yes. And I was thinking about this, uh, this, this ESG component, which I think is so, so relevant now. And I've been thinking about this and talking about this for sort of 10 years of that, you know, I know where my barrel in Canada comes from. I know where my barrel in the U S comes from. I know that it's not produced with forced labor. I know if I'm flaring, I know the methane, methane, everything. And so, you know, there's, there's, yes, there's more things we can do here in the U S to on, on methane reductions on everything, but in terms of, you know, humanely sourcing a barrel of crude oil, also, you know, keeping the revenue in the U.S., not exporting it to a foreign, not exporting it, you know, giving the money to Iran, giving the money to Russia, um, giving the money to, uh, uh, you know, unstable dictatorships in, in Africa. I mean, this is really quite serious. Um, yeah. And I think it's a big deal that, you know, one tell, a recognition we, we consume. This is still a roughly 100 million day, barrel day production and supply global market. And so sustainably sourcing these barrels, which we absolutely do in the U.S., is just an important aspect of this business. Absolutely. And I think, you know, there's absolutely a market for it too. I, I saw on a weekly data that we used 23 million barrels uh, in the U.S., uh, which is actually quite scary uh, when you look it's at the high. projections. Yep. Um, but let's say that there's a market for 5 million or so of those to be, to be uh, you know, people are buying organic milk um, and, and I do as well. So there's a market for, um a premium product and we have a premium product so um oil totally organic by the way oh totally organic you can't beat that so um so yeah i think uh we should sell our organic oil yeah organic sustainably sourced um homegrown yep yeah is it local local gluten-free correct sand yeah gluten-free yep (laughs) uh it's great all right, well, we could go on a number of tangents, but uh, I really want to thank you for for joining me on the podcast. I'll have to have you back because I'm sure we, we barely this, like scratch. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, absolute ton of fun. Fantastic guest. I uh, hope, hope the listeners think so as well, but thank you so much and we'll talk soon. All right, Trisha. Thanks a lot.